Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Hi, Vanessa, Ariana, and Casper. Hi, Ariana, and Vanessa, and Casper. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana. Dear Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matthew Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owl Post edition. We are so excited to be joined in the studio today by the Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts, which he does not like when I call him. Would you prefer that I call you the Harvard professor, Matthew Matt Potts? Is, Matt's fine, I think. Matt. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Fine. So, Matt, this is now your third time joining us on the podcast. The first time you came on, you told a beautiful story about grief. The second time you were on at our Cambridge Live show, you told us a brilliant story about a time that you were mean to a homeless person. (laughs) That's that's right. And now we're going to have you talk about another cheerful topic, the apocalypse. I feel like we're on brand for you, though. (laughs) Grief. Disappointing people, the apocalypse. Yeah. These are your favorite topics. Yeah, the, among my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that we as a culture are more obsessed with the apocalypse now than we were like 20, 30 years ago? I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm not a historian of any sense, right? But like, I think I think we can think about the apocalypse in very broad terms. I think that there can be apocalyptic moments in human history. The arrival of Europeans in the North American continent or in the Americas generally was apocalyptic for many human beings, right? And so the idea of human civilization being radically altered and even destructively kind of impacted for large segments of the human population is not new. I think what is new in this moment is we have strong scientific evidence that human civilization is at real risk of collapse within the lifetimes of people who are currently living on this planet. So I have two thoughts on that. One is just like a general agreement that there are constantly local apocalypses, right? Mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina was a local apocalypse. What we're always talking about in terms of apocalypses is a worldwide apocalypse, but there was an apocalypse in Hiroshima and there was an apocalypse in Nagasaki, right? Like the plague was an apocalypse that we aren't at much risk for. So now we're at risk for a different one. Are we actually in a different place I mean, I think that the genre of apocalypse as a kind of form of literary writing or or prophecy or whatever arises within a more local context, right? The Israelites in post-exile were wondering how to make sense of their world. They had seen parts of the world fall apart. And so they were speculating about how the end times might resolve all the confusions and injustices of the world that they, they saw, right? And so we can understand other forms of kind of apocalyptic or apocalypse happening in our world or in particular moments at that small scale. With the exception of nuclear holocaust, which was a real risk during the Cold War, the idea that there would be a 
an apocalyptic event that would pervade all of human civilization, I think really is unique. Now, one thing I think that you said, which is really right and important for us to remember, is that climate change is not going to affect everybody equally, and that those who are more privileged and powerful now are going to remain more privileged and powerful to protect themselves from the consequences of climate change. So climate change is always going to be a locally experienced disaster. I think the kind of universality or the ubiquity of its disastrousness is something which is unique. Part of the excitement to me of talking about the apocalypse is that it causes a lot of like existential and theological questions to be more relevant in our lives, right? So it's like, what makes for a good life? What am I trying to preserve and why am I trying to preserve it, right? Makes these theological questions lived questions and I think in a more urgent way. I mean, one thing that's really interesting in the way that there's a boom in sort of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic and dystopian literature now. One thing that distinguishes that kind of writing from ancient forms of apocalypse is exactly what you're saying. The contemporary forms of this writing tend to focus upon the human experience of it. Whereas as I read them, ancient forms of this writing tend to try to be justifying God to human beings. Like God has promised us justice. We do not witness justice in our age. How can this make sense? Oh, the way it makes sense is because there will be a future date at which all this will be sorted out, right? The word apocalypse means revelation. It's just the Greek word for revelation. And what we're saying is that, oh, the sense of all this stuff that doesn't make sense will be revealed to us at some end time where all the stuff that doesn't make sense now is sorted out. What's different about like contemporary, I think, literature of apocalypse or even the experience of, of an end time coming is not, oh, it's all going to make sense. Because actually, it sort of makes sense. We know what we're doing. We know what's causing climate change. We actually know most of the things that we could do to prevent it. We're not doing those things. And so the end that we anticipate is rational and logical and we can anticipate it. The thing we're concerned about is the experiential existential problem of crap, civilization is ending, perhaps within the lifetime of my children. What does that mean? What does it mean to live, to live with that threat looming? What does it mean to live responsibly? What does it mean to live meaningfully when there is this kind of impending sense of crisis and um, doom? Yeah. I think part of the reason, right, to the doom and suffering point that I'm obsessed with apocalypse is that I was raised by people who witnessed an apocalypse, right? Like I was raised in part by four Holocaust survivors who saw the the world end and walked out. And so I think post-apocalyptic literature, I lived their post-apocalypse. I was their post-apocalypse. And then I think, you know, what compounded that was I went and worked in New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina helping rebuild schools. And that, again, was this like there was this sense of the walking dead afterwards. And I came back with mold poisoning because the city had become sort of radioactive in this way. And then when it really became a lived obsession with me was with the storms that hit last year in Houston and then in Miami and then in Puerto Rico, I was like, oh, this is just the new normal, right? It's just going to be one storm after another. How do I want to live in conversation with it? And gave a lot of thought, like, you know, do I want to build an apocalypse kit? You know, what do I want to survive and what do I not want to survive? Who do I want to consider to be part of my responsibility to protect? And who do I want to say, sorry, kid, you're on your own. And I live with 34 Harvard students. And how much is Harvard responsible for? And how much am I responsible for? Right. And it became this, like, really interesting and productive way to ask myself questions that I think we sh I should have been asking myself all along. Do you have an apocalypse kit? I don't have an apocalypse kit. No. Even though you have kids? 
even though I have kids. Is yeah. there a reason you don't have an apocalypse kit? I mean, it might be because I'm just, I don't think that the particular dangers are as urgently pressing. Like, I think this is something that will happen in my children's lifetime. I don't think it's something that will happen next week, necessarily. Mm-hmm. I could be proven wrong next week because, um, well, just because of the weather, <laughs> right? It's a funny thing to think about, right? One of the first times we hung out as friends, you were my yes. professor, you were my teacher. Yes. And then Casper invited us over to your house. Right. And mm-hmm. then there was this like day of transition where what really happened was that your wife and children fell in love with us. And so you had to become friends with us. Right. And that day it came up that the question I always have when I drive away from non-Jews houses yeah. is would they hide my family if the Holocaust happened? Right. I don't know why I told you that question, yep. but I told you and it like really bothered you as a question. Mm-hmm. And it's an apocalypse question, right? It's a like how a would you bit. it's yes. how would you react to my apocalypse? Yes. Is the question. Yes. And would I be willing to share it? <laughs> right. Putting myself and others at risk, potentially. Would, right. And that yes. was the really compelling thing that you said to me. You were like, This is such a hard thing. And I yes. wasn't asking you like, Hey, would you hide me? Yes. But, but the thing that was interesting for me is that I mean, because I thought about it for a while and the decision refracted essentially around my children. Which is first, I want to keep my children safe and do not want to put them in undue risk. But then I also thought I could never face my children if I turned you away. And so that all the reflection about it, and of course we would take you in, but the, it would be because, not, not for me and not even necessarily for you, I, right? But because I could not face my children ever again if I turned away a person they loved. And that whatever risk was involved in extending that hospitality and that care was in virtue of that, right? And it's also like the way I also think about apocalypse, actually. You know, you spoke about how you came to think about apocalypse. Two things in general have got me thinking about apocalypse, especially the impending kind of collapse of human civilization that climate change poses. The first was having my first child, which was an incredibly joyful event, but also an event in which her mortality was incredibly obvious to me all at once. And so I had to reckon just in the moment of my, the first time I held her that she was going to die someday and that I could not prevent that. And all the love that I could give her had to be in context of some loss, some loss that hopefully I will not face personally in my lifetime, but that I know is a reality of just the fact that she is a human being. And the second is becoming a pastor. And, you know, we talked about how apocalypse can be local. Like I see very local, like at the family scale apocalypses all the time where a husband gets a diagnosis that his husband has cancer or a family learns that their child has some kind of illness or dies suddenly. Those kinds of ends of the world happen. And what I have recognized is that in so much of the Christian religious tradition, we have a kind of triumphalistic sort of narrative that undergirds the way we talk about things, that everything's going to be okay, that all will turn out well in the end. And even in the way we talk about apocalypse in contemporary culture, there's a debate among climate activists, which is how much truth do we tell the world, because if we tell them too much truth about how bad things are, they will despair and not do anything. If we don't tell them enough truth about how things are, they will not know the seriousness of things and so not act. And I actually think that I think that we can trust people enough to tell them the truth. Because I see people in my parish get the truth about people they love every day. And they don't react by denial. Or, they react in sadness and despair. But their reaction is to just, with the time they have remaining, to love the person who that they may be losing as much and as well as they can with that time they have remaining. And sort of for religious and also political and social reasons, I also think that's kind of the posture I'm trying to take towards the earth 
I don't know if we can save the earth from what we have brought upon it. I do know that the only thing we can do is to attend to it with care and attention and compassion and love the way we should have been all these years, but that we still can now in the time that remains. And I also think that if we do that, that actually provides us the best chance for mitigating the effects of climate change or delaying the effects of climate change in a, in a reasonable way. Yeah. So I mean, if I can just like one theological example, there's a reformed monk and theologian named Martin Luther. We're not sure if he actually said this. And the legend is that a person once asked him if he knew the world was ending tomorrow. They said, Martin, if you knew the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do? And he said, if the world were ending tomorrow, I would plant a tree in my garden. That the act of planting the tree is not good because it will one day yield a large towering oak, but just the act of that care, even if it only is there for a day, has value in and of itself. And to attend to the world around us with that kind of attention, with that kind of care and love, attend to the things that we are losing with that kind of care and love seems to be the only responsible posture that people, religious or non-religious, can take as we face an end to something in coming years. Yeah, it was the way that I thought about building my apocalypse kit was like, right, when you talk to a lot of people who are interested in building these apocalypse kits, guns come up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. What I definitely want to do is like, make sure that I have enough water for more than just myself and my dog, right? And I had very good models for that. My grandmother, my dad's mother was not a nice person by the time I knew her. But I got to meet several people who knew her in Auschwitz. And she would go and get the soup and bring the soup to dying people and would share her portion of the, like, sawdust soup. And so I feel like I have this, like, even in the apocalypse, the best way to survive selfishly is to take care of others because it gives you a sense of purpose. And I truly believe it's why she survived is because she saw herself as essential to other people's survival, right? Like, it, it gave her motivation to live. I think that's the thing, right, is as we face these difficult times ahead is how, how we can live well with the others around us. I mean, you asked why I didn't have an apocalypse kit. I think that might partly just be denialism on my part. But I think it's also just sort of trying to realistically place myself within a world economy in which I enjoy the kind of privilege. Like I am the kind of person who will be able to be largely protected, not entirely protected. And we don't know this the extent of climate change to come, but... For example, you know, last year they had the storm in Houston. At the same time, there were monsoons in Bangladesh that relocated hundreds of thousands of people, killed tens of thousands of people, right? That even already, the impact of climate change is, is not distributed fairly. And so knowing that I am a privileged person who lives on Cape Cod in a community that has resources and can protect itself, my attentions may be a better place to lessen like making an apocalypse kit for myself and more upon trying to draw attention to the places where the kind of infrastructure and support that can diminish the impact of these things needs to be addressed, augmented, whatever. And it's exactly that that made me feel like I should build yeah. a kit because I was like, I need to stay humble and remember that I'm not above it. Yeah, right. right. Like in order for me to sympathize better, to empathize better in a radical way with others, I needed to go through the process of really yeah. like dealing with my own fear and yeah. feeling like I wasn't above it. And yeah, I think so it's almost like a spiritual practice, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. What would it be like to actually be this precarious, right. to live in this kind of precarity? Yeah, that's that makes sense. I'm just starting to think with the way that you framed Apocalypse as Revelation, I'm starting to think as, you know, these seven Harry Potter books take place at sort of the time between the two battles, right? It's like one war and this is sort of a peacetime within one war. 
And I'm just now thinking of that time as an apocalypse time, right? That it's there's a lot of reckoning that's happening of auspicious names that are given after people who have fallen. And, you know, who do you name whom after and who's taking care of which orphans? And it does seem to really be grappling with, like, the possibility of the end of the world. I think that one of the moral complexities of our particular moment is that, and this often happens in either scriptural or secular apocalyptic literatures, is that the bad thing is happening is happening from outside of us, is happening to us. And we are called upon to struggle against it and triumph over it. But it's not our fault necessarily. (laughs) The thing that's unique about this moment is that the wickedness we are fighting is also something that we have brought upon the world. I'm speaking especially now as a privileged first world sort of citizen that we do have this battle, this kind of battle for the soul of of humanity and for the future of human civilization before us. But part of that battle is also accepting responsibility that we have brought this upon ourselves, right? Yeah. And I think we see that also in the Harry Potter books, right? That Harry is a horcrux. Harry, you know, carries Voldemort around with him. And it's not that Harry as a baby was complicit in the evil, but that he, by growing up in this world, is complicit in this complicated ecosystem. Certainly his body is, whether or not he meant it to be, in a way that, right, like a baby's body, like, uses a lot of diapers and uses a lot of resources. Like, it is not the baby's fault, but it ends up being complicit in waste and pollution. Something that is occurring to me as you, like, help me generously reframe my apocalypse box, it was also very much about wanting some control over something that I felt like I had no control over. You know, in dealing with, like, how do I donate? Who do I donate to? How is my money actually going to make a difference? Building a box was, like, something that I could control in the face of that. Yeah. And I am a controlling person. I mean, that's that's interesting because, like, the role of uncertainty in our relationship to impending bad times is interesting and important and maybe something that we – that we need to take up deliberately as a spiritual or um, philosophical practice or something, right? I mean, one of the things interesting, at least as I understand it, about the ancient genre of apocalypse is that it was actually a hedge against uncertainty, that God was supposed to order the world, but our world doesn't make sense. So we're going to write a story where everything makes sense in the end so we can have some sense of order, so we can have some feeling of control over the uncertainty of our experience. Again, one of the things that's shifted in our contemporary age is that we, it does make sense. We know why the world is ending. We're not sure what impacts there will be. We just know that they will be significant. And so we don't get to tell a different story that will give us a false sense of security. We have the story, and what it brings us is uncertainty. So, so one of the things that we need to learn to do is to live with a lack of control, live with uncertainty, not knowing what we face, but trying to equip ourselves to face whatever comes, living up to the values we hold in a meaningful and deliberate and uh, compassionate way. So Matt, a lot of our voicemails that Ariana has picked for us are about this theme of control, of people feeling out of control and trying to get a sense of control in their lives, which is in part why we wanted to have this conversation with you. Also, because I want any excuse to talk about the apocalypse. So would you like to stay with us and respond to some voicemails? I'd love to. Our first voicemail is from the UK, from Peach. Hi, Vanessa, Ariana, and Casper. My name is Peach, and I live in the UK. 
After listening to your discussion on hate, I wanted to ask your opinion about something I've been experiencing recently. So I'm a new mum to a wonderful four-month-old daughter, and often during those long sleepless nights with the new baby, I find myself on social media, confronted with what seems to be the international platform for spreading hatred. Sometimes there is all-out hatred, the vile language, the abuse written in caps locks, the unmistakable racism or blatant homophobia or just discrimination in general. But then there's also a different type of post which I see as a sort of precursor to hatred. It's the fake news posts, right? It's the, the scaremongering stuff, the stuff like did you know Muslims are part of a conspiracy to make the West adopt Sharia law? Or did you know doctors are trying to force parents to give their kids harmful vaccines? Their claims, backed by pseudoscience or rumour or the ramblings of some influential nutter, are the beginnings, the roots of hatred, and it's based in ignorance and fear. And I just don't know how to respond to it. Sometimes I block it out or ignore it, but at other times I feel compelled to reply. Not with counter-abuse or venom, of course, because I don't believe that shouting people down or even telling them that they're wrong um, works in this sphere. But just politely and kindly stating facts. For example, an acquaintance of mine shared an article about the dangers of vaccinations. So I read the article and then I replied to them just to say that some of the points in the article were inaccurate and I pointed her to some more reliable sources um, in other parts of the internet. But on some level, I hate myself for doing this. Why am I so pulled in? Why do I care about stupid social media and why on earth do I spend time reading and watching hateful things and then researching the facts to form a counter-argument? It feels foolish and a waste of time when I put it like that. But at the same time, I want to be a good world citizen and stand up to hatred. And more importantly, I want to set a good example for my own daughter. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. And thank you so much for all that you do in this wonderful podcast. Peach, thank you for your your message and congratulations on the birth of your daughter. As I was listening to your email, or your voicemail, a couple of things came to mind. The first is, there's this famous quote originally from a different context from Audre Lorde, which is the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. And so I think you're right to be suspicious about the effect that our fact checking on social media can do to actually change anyone's opinions. That doesn't mean that we need to be quietist or silent in the face of deliberate falsehood or falsehood, which can have a, a bad effect upon the world. But it also means that we shouldn't punish ourselves for the limits of that. I mean, especially in light of some of the things we've been talking about today with apocalypse, I think recognizing the limits of our power is one of the things that we're called to do in this world. That doesn't mean we don't care about the big things in the world that we can't change, but that we can also take seriously and um, place value in and be proud of the things that we can do to make the world a more loving place. And when I think of you in the middle of the night with your daughter, loving her and caring for her and, and raising her to be a, a world citizen, a person who will face the challenges that we face as a world, it seems like that is a worthwhile and important response to the, the problems we face. And that you can be realistic about the harm that's out there and also feel good about the difference you're making just in the love you have for your child. 
Yeah, I'm also getting more and more resistant to the idea that social media is not real. Social media is curated, but there are definitely officially (laughs) real world repercussions to things that happen just on social media, right? The Christchurch shooting was in large part done because of social media platforms was able to be done and then have a message sent out because of it. Not to keep going back to this Martin Luther thing, but like I also just think it's important to like plant a tree of truth, even if it's not going to land and just be like, here are counterfacts. You can either be moved by them or not. But it forced you to do research and to like get really good on your facts and is forcing you to confront that there are people out there who have completely different beliefs than you. And Lindy West changed Twitter Right. Lindy West was being trolled on Twitter so heinously that she wrote a brilliant piece for This American Life about it. And that caused Twitter CEO at the time to say internally in an email that was leaked, we are managing trolls badly on Twitter and we can do better and we need to do better. I just think that these are the ethics of our time and these are important conversations to be having. I think that's true. I actually agree with everything you said. And I wouldn't say that there's a reality more real. You don't have to sound so surprised. Yeah. (laughs) I actually agree with everything you said. You know, and and I think that it's, I think you're right. I don't think that we can let obvious and deliberate falsehoods stand unchecked. I think Peach should forgive herself if that check is not received well or if it's ineffective. Like you said, I think it may be like planting a tree when the world is ending. I guess all I'm saying is that I have become entirely persuaded that the social media tools we have in our world are incredibly effective instruments for distributing and um, increasing the amount of hate in this world. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure that, that it's as effective an instrument for increasing love. It may be that the tools we have to increase the amount of the world's love are different ones, or at least that we need a larger toolkit of tools to increase the world's love. And that social media maybe has a place in it, but it seems to me that that hate is really effective when we can abstract and depersonalize others. And love spreads when we are forced to make the other a real intimate reality in our experience, right? Yeah, and I just, I didn't know this until starting to work on a Harry Potter podcast and really being like invited into nerd online culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I am somebody who in the midst of Los Angeles, California, felt isolated in some of my interests. and, And I especially think about kids who, for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable coming out or are a minority in any number of ways in their local communities. And it's like, well, if they have access to other people like them and can feel less alone because of social media, that's real. And that is a way of spreading love on social media. And part of what I love about sort of love-based social media is that it, it does seem to want to transition to coming together and meeting face to face and like doing nerd con and right like nerd fighter events and whereas when people who gather based on hate often want to wear hoods right yeah. and hide i mean i think maybe that's the difference right and it's like maybe you're just exposing my old man luddite tendencies right but uh, there's something about the encounter that peach describes which is at the outset confrontational yes and that it doesn't seem like social media can do much to overcome that that initially antagonistic stance but when there is a position of mutual trust of openness then it can become this incredibly useful tool for doing exactly what you said increasing the amount of love in the world rather than um than hate this next voicemail is from stephanie hi harry potter and the sacred text team this is stephanie from ohio i just wanted to call 
with gratitude for your recent episodes on control and defiance. For about the past four weeks, control has been kind of a issue and a theme in our home. My son has autism and ADHD, and we recently tried a new medication to help him have more control because ADHD is an impulse control disorder. And so we tried this new medication that works for a lot of people with ADHD, and it had the complete opposite effect on my son. He was so out of control, and I think he was really scared by who he was when he was taking this medication. Obviously, we stopped the medication because he was uh, not doing well at all. And as we stopped it and he has gained control back over his life, we have since then been in defiance, apparently, trying to get the school to allow him back into his classroom. And I just I really appreciate your conversation on those thoughts. They've really touched my heart. I also want to say that even though I'm very frustrated with how things are going at his school, I am very grateful for the people who've chosen to work with all kids, but especially kids with special needs. But I want to give a blessing for Harry, especially with how he's just under the thumb of Professor Umbridge. I feel in a lot of ways that that's how my son is being treated right now, that he's just under this microscope and not being allowed to do anything, make any mistake, even though I feel like, you know, he's doing a lot of things that other kids would do too. It's just different because, or more apparent because of his autism. And so my blessings for Harry and anyone who feels like they don't have control. Stephanie, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. And I am so sorry. I mean, it's just such a betrayal when a medication that is supposed to help you instead harms you. And then for you to feel like you are fighting to get your son back into a classroom in which you feel as though he is being treated similarly to the way that Umbridge treats students. I just can't imagine how hard that is and how lucky your son is to have you in his life. Although I know that you feel as though your life is very out of control right now, I feel like the thing that you can control, which is loving your son, it seems like you're hitting that out of the park. Yeah, I just want to agree with what Vanessa said. And um, it's interesting that, as you said, that your son has an impulse control disorder. But how that manifests for you as a parent is as you don't have as much control over the situation as you would want. I think about myself as a parent, how much I would want to just fix it but you don't have control over that. What I find really moving and beautiful about uh, your voicemail and your story is how even though there are some things that you cannot control, the things that you can control, your love for your son, that you could still see and recognize your, your child's fear, that you're still loving your son, that you're advocating for your son, that you said you are grateful to the people who are helping, that you can still control your gratitude and your attitude toward this. It seems like that part of what you can control, you're doing with such grace. And I, like Vanessa, think that he's really lucky to have you as a mom. Our next voicemail is from Britt. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana. My name is Britt, and I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. I just finished listening to your episode on the theme of obligation and found myself 
really moved by your discussion surrounding Harry feeling obligated to share his story with the Quibbler and then the relief that followed the sharing of that story. You mentioned how this is an important thing for Harry to do as a part of this general resistance, but also as a part of his own healing to tell his story. And I completely agree. Um, I am a mental health therapist whose clinical focus is on trauma, and I see with clients all the time how powerful telling their stories in meaningful ways can be. And we also see this all the time that people telling their stories are often the strongest advocates for important causes, whether it's the Parkland survivors telling their stories or sexual assault survivors coming forward with Me Too stories it's clear the power and impact that can be found in saying this happened to me and we need to do something about it so that it doesn't happen again to anyone else. But I'm also struck by the burden that this can create, uh, the negative side of obligation, the way that it can re-traumatize, the way that speaking out about your own trauma, especially repeatedly, can both galvanize a movement and also perpetuate and reactivate deep internal pain. Um, This week, two survivors of the Parkland shooting died by suicide, as did a father of a child killed at Sandy Hook. Their stories of trauma have been instrumental in the building of a movement to fight gun violence in America, but there was also no escape from their stories for them, no place that they could go untainted by those reminders. So I just want to offer a blessing for Harry, for those three people who lost their lives this week, and for everyone else touched by trauma who has found the healing and meaning in telling their story accompanied by or overshadowed by the pain. Um, I see you, I hear you, and I stand with you. Thank you, Britt, for your voicemail. I, too, was heartbroken to hear about those suicides. One of the things about stories and storytelling is that, kind of like the internet, stories can be good and stories can be bad. It depends on how they're used. And one of the things that's really empowering about storytelling is it can allow us, especially if we've been victims of trauma, it can allow us to place ourselves within the world in a meaningful way when the world doesn't make sense to help try to make some sense of it to allow us to be seen by others. The trick is, and I think you point to this in a really important way, is that once seen by others, our stories can be co-opted, even by those who are well-intentioned and generous. And we start to feel like we lose control of our stories. And so I think that tension is one that we, especially those of us who want to be advocates for those who are victims of trauma, need to remember that and need to remember that, that the best thing that we can offer maybe is the sort of blessing you offer, which is to remember that that these individual stories have broader political implications, but that there is still real individual suffering behind them. And that is what often needs our attention. And I do think that that is part of the power of religion and of using a fictional book as sacred, right? Is that we get we get to talk about Ginny's trauma and Ginny's re-traumatizing without actually re-traumatizing anyone. And I also think, you know, there is a lot of pushback in the academy against trigger warnings, but it's why we've committed to using them. We don't want our stories to be hurting other people. And so something that we think about a lot is making sure that we're always preaching from our scars, not our wounds, and telling stories that we feel ready to tell, and then talking about really difficult things using fictional characters so we can't hurt them. Yeah, stories are really powerful, and we have to be careful about how we use them. Our next voicemail is from Carrie, who wants to go to HDS one day, so sounds very wise. 
Hi, Ariana and Vanessa and Casper. My name is Carrie. I am a senior in high school, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for this podcast. You all are absolutely incredible, and a bunch of my friends and I are big fans. A lot of us are Unitarian Universalists, so we love listening to this podcast as part of our spiritual practice. Um, I wanted to leave a voicemail today because I've been thinking a lot about Hermione, especially at the beginning of the series when she hasn't really became friends with Ron and Harry yet. And I can imagine that she must have felt so excited going to Hogwarts and learning all these new things and meeting all these new people. And when she gets there and she knows the answers to everything, and instead of everybody being impressed and also have having been so excited to learn magic, they are kind of just annoyed by her and put off by how bossy she is and how much she knows about about everything. And I have felt that too over the years, but I felt it really acutely this past week. I switched into a new class at my school, and there are a bunch of guys in that class that I've grown up with through the years, but it's just really built up into... A bunch of them not liking me and giving me looks and avoiding me and not talking to me and not treating me like a human being with great ideas and wonderful questions and as somebody who can contribute to the conversations in the class. So I just felt for Hermione and I wanted to offer her a blessing and offer that blessing to people, especially women across the world who are excited about things and want to share them and then are shut down. I am going to Wellesley College next year where I think that experience will be very different and I just wanted to thank you for this community. I mean as a as a high school boy who also suffered from high school boys, I'm sorry for those high school boys. Um but but also that I mean, I went to college and I was super excited about finally finding my people. I think that I felt out of place and sort of excluded sometimes in high school. And I thought when I went to college, I would finally be at home with the people who were like me. And and I was miserable my first year because I had suffered in the same kinds of exclusions. And and actually, part of the reason I was miserable was because I had placed so much into this being my new home. I thought I had to fit in easily. And so I've tried to force myself to fit. And it's only when I just gave up on that and just was myself that the people who were like me just kind of came out of the woodwork and I made my best friendship. So I think things will be better without high school boys next year at Wellesley. But just stay true to yourself. Like it sounds like you're doing and the good people will find you. Right. The two things I want you to take away are that boys are the worst and transitions are the worst. Boys are the worst. Transitions are almost as bad. Yeah. How about that? It really bothered you grammatically. Well, a little bit. How can two things be the worst? I mean, just Hi, technically, definitionally, only one thing can be worst. But you're so American. I'm giving you boys as the worst. Okay, but there are things called ties. Okay. Our last voicemail is from Connie. Dear Rihanna, Casper, and Vanessa. Hi, this is Connie, originally from Austria, but I moved to the UK recently. Very exciting. And I can't believe... I'm finally sending you a voicemail. Um, I've had so many drafts of voicemails I was going to send to you um, about Percy, who I love and who I identify so much with, about Ron, who's my favourite character and I don't think he gets enough love. Um, A lot of voicemails um, where I criticise Hermione, who I think sometimes you're a bit too easy on, although I'm fiercely feminist, so I see where you're coming from. Um... I absolutely love your podcast, but I've been so busy recently and I've never really had the time to listen to it the way I used to. 
But today, I finally, finally, finally had a day off. So um, I've spent the entire day kind of catching up and listening to all the episodes I've missed. And it just so happens that the episodes I listened to today had a lot of Ron and Hermione content, and I ship them a lot. And I've just, you know, I've had a really great day. I've just been giggling a lot, and I've rewrote my favourite parts of the book and um I've been tearing up a lot and it's just been an amazing day you know and I feel like um I have to thank you for that because I just never really take the time to sit down and uh, you know just take a rest and and do the thing that I like and that's Harry Potter you know so um I wanted to offer a blessing to you three for making my, and I'm sure many people's days, and ways to work, and car rides, um, and for making them so much more enjoyable, and beautiful, and sacred. Now that I'm in London, um, I can finally go and actually meet you, I can't wait for your London event, with Ariana and Vanessa, and I just wanted to thank you for everything you do, it, it just brightens up all of our days, I think. Thank you, bye. Connie, thank you so much for that so nice voicemail. And I know Ariana really hates Ron. I I think that this lumps back into our previous comment, which is that high school boys are the worst. I will say one of my favorite, favorite moments of our Harry Potter Sacred Text class that Matt, you actually came to visit, was we were talking about how horrible it is that Ron leaves Hermione and Harry in book seven. And... Either Casper or I, and I don't remember who, said something disparaging about Ron. And three women at the same time all yelled, he was hungry. And there was just like this great outpouring of love and defense of Ron. And, you know, I grew up with brothers. I love dumb boys. They're just dumb. I think Ron is so lovable, but so dumb. And also, Connie, I'm so glad for you that you had a, finally had a day off. It sounds like you're really busy, but that you had a day off to do some self-care and uh, enjoy the things you love most and leave us that wonderful voicemail. That's great. I, I'm so excited to see you in London. It's just me. It's not Ariana. But Ariana's the real Ron hater, so maybe it's better if she's not coming. This has been an Owl Post edition of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group, which is called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Common Room, to chat with other listeners about the episode, or come and join the over 1,000 people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes so that Casper feels good about himself, and send us a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. We hope to see you at one of our live shows coming up in Holyoke, Massachusetts on May 8th. Next week, we're reading Chapter 31, OWLs, through the theme of celebration. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. This week, we would like to thank everyone who sent in a voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Egan, Stephanie Paulsell, oh, and Matt Potts. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Matt Potts. Can you say it like not ironically? <laughs> Was that ironic? <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm Matt. And I'm, Matt. I'm. And I'm. And I. Okay. Okay. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. 
And that, this, what's wrong with that? It sounds You're like laughing. you don't know your name. What? You're saying it like it's a question. I don't call myself Matt. Oh, so, what do you call yourself? Matthew. Oh, so say that. Okay, but everybody else calls me Matt, so I don't want to make it everyone call me Matthew. But okay, fine. Whatever. Say Matthew Potts. Okay. 